Hello and welcome to episode 49 of A Positive Podcast. Today's podcast is powered by okclarity.com. More about them later in the show. If you would like to sponsor an episode in honor of a loved one or celebrate an upcoming special occasion or just because you appreciate what we're doing here on A Positive Podcast, please reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com, or you can email me at razel at jewishpeabody.com. In addition, if you're curious to hear more about positive psychology-based coaching and to see if it's a fit for you, you can reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com, to set up your free consultation today. Today's episode is sponsored anonymously by a shliach in honor of the Rebbe's shluchim and their families. Thank you so much. In today's episode, we have a conversation between Dr. Shlaimi Zimmerman and Rabbi Nechema Shusterman, my husband, on a topic that can be challenging at times, that all parents struggle with. This topic of supporting our sons with regard to sexuality, puberty, body changes, marital intimacy, and more can be hard to have and hard to actually execute properly. Dr. Shlaimi Zimmerman authored a book titled From Boys to Men, and this book integrates the Tara's wisdom and cutting-edge psychological research to provide a comprehensive approach to educating and supporting our sons and our students regarding health and safety, puberty, marital intimacy, and today's challenges to Kedusha. I have the link for the book in the show notes as well. Dr. Slimy Zerman is a licensed clinical psychologist who founded and directs Child and Adult Psychological Services, a multidisciplinary group mental health practice. He's a world-renowned speaker and he consults to many nonprofits in the fields of child development, education, abuse prevention, and trauma. Dr. Zimmerman is also the chair of a Muddim's Advisory Board and chair of Muggin New York's Clinical Advisory Board. He has a wealth of information, and him and my husband sit down and discuss this very important topic. I think you will find it interesting, informative, and it will help you have a better understanding of this important topic, and it will help you formulate your words and help you be able to talk to your children about these very vital topics and sensitive subject matter. So sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. Okay, so again, welcome to a positive podcast. Um, today, particularly, we are addressing a particularly difficult and important topic to authentically um, do this in a way we may have to use terminology that is blunt and maybe uncomfortable for some. So this is a heads up to the listeners that if your children are around, you may want to listen to this first and decide um, if this is something that you want them to listen to and how you want to do that. Um, so this is the warning. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to take a quick break here for a message from our sponsor, OKClarity.com. OKClarity.com is the place for any Jew, no matter how religious you are, to find a top-notch therapist, psychiatrist, coach, or nutritionist. And it's completely free. And their professionals are vetted, and they have extensive experience working within the Jewish community. So if you're in the market for a therapist or coach, check them out at OKClarity.com. If you yourself are a provider and you're looking to list yourself, check out OKClarity.com. I know that I've been recently listed, listed as a coach on OKClarity as well. Also, if you're interested, OKClarity has an amazing WhatsApp status or group with thousands of followers, and their WhatsApp is a free way to improve your mental health, and they post great humor, so you're going to laugh too. So if you have WhatsApp, shoot them a message, and you can be added as well. It's in my show notes as well. So check out OKClarity.com. You know that you won't regret it. 
Okay, so we're really focusing on two topics today, and they're really intersected, you know, and that is the topic of pornography and Zara Levatala, um, wasting seed, masturbation, however you want to um, refer to these terms. And, uh, you know, we'll refer to it in multiple different ways throughout the conversation, but this is really what we're talking about. Um, this is an important topic, and it's something that's talked about in Halacha and, and in many uh, sources all around it. Uh, so today, we're going to tackle this issue head on. So um, as a, a bit of a background to lead us into this, we're living in truly unprecedented times in some very positive ways because of the, ad, um, the, the effect of technology. We were able to do really positive things. Everyone has access to Torah and, and things that were truly never previously available. But there's a flip side to that, and that is with the internet and the proliferation of pornography. Um, it has taken the age-old challenge of Zara Levatala and made inappropriate material, which used to be somewhat difficult to get access to, even more accessible. Pretty much you need a, a, a Wi-Fi connection at any Starbucks and a device of even the most basic flavor, and you have access to things that are that were truly unavailable and in the highest definition possible, which makes these challenges that were once upon a time a challenge for everybody, but it makes them so much more challenging and um, a much more difficult uh, challenge to uh, to grapple with. And thus, you wrote the book From Boys to Men, which addresses this uh, topic and how to talk about it, etc. So before we jump into in more specific questions, why don't you give us a little bit of a background about you? I know that you're clinically uh, qualified, but uh, tell us what um, about you, what got you to write this book? You know, how did this all come about? Okay, well, first of all, thank you, Rabbi Schusterman, for uh, hosting me. I really appreciate being able to be on this podcast. And, you know, as I've done quite a number of lectures within different Chabad Moistus, they, they kept saying, hey, you, you have to get on the, to the Rabbi Schusterman's podcast. And then the, actually, I think the day I lectured, they, they, you, you reached out to me. So um, I appreciate you, you, you hosting me here. The, it's interesting even how you're starting this. And, and it's, it, it was a complication in terms of the development of this book because Today, naturally, when we talk about these struggles, we immediately go to the proliferation of pornography, the internet. But like you alluded to, the issues of sexuality, how to handle these struggles have existed since the beginning of time. Uh, famously, the Gemara says after Avodah Zarah, the, the, the hardest thing for the Jewish nation to handle was issues of sexual inappropriate behavior. And the only difference was when they prayed to get rid of that, the, the Navi warned them that uh, if you get rid of this, the world will cease to function. So they said, oh, you know, let's hold on. Uh, they imprisoned it, whatever that exactly means, for three days. And the world stopped functioning. You couldn't even get uh, freshly laid eggs. There was no more warmth or vitality in the world. So the whole world ceased to function without this sexual energy. And so they said, okay, we don't have any choice. So they, you know, quote unquote, poked it in the eye, which many learned to say that you don't have as intense desires to your immediate family, but pretty much desire is going to run rampant to everything that is not acceptable to the Torah, you know, to, to people other than your spouse and to all, all forms of inappropriate content. So the, what happens today, we want to make it as if this is an issue from today's day and age. This has always been an issue. Like you said, what's unprecedented is what in the research is called the three A's, the accessibility, affordability, and anonymity of inappropriate context. So accessibility-wise, if you were in a shtetl in Europe and you really wanted uh, 
you know, highly inappropriate sexual content, you really need to go out of town to a seedy part of town. You, you needed to make major efforts. It was really not accessible. It was usually pretty costly. It wasn't so affordable. And definitely you cannot stay anonymous. Um, and now, you know, you have access, like you said, usually in, in a device that uh, can be a tiny, it can fit into your pocket. Uh, it can be with you in the bathroom. It's a, in fact, the content is actually, preponderance of it is free. And it is 100% anonymous. So that is historically unprecedented on every level. Uh, you know, we're, we're dealing around Purim time. So today, within 15 minutes, any person with such capability can see more inappropriate content than Achashverosh did in his whole life. You know, when we think about the kings, uh, you know, going back to people who, you know, violated every boundaries and had, you know, pageants and whatever, you know, literally a boy could see more open sexual content in 15 minutes than any person ever in history in their whole life. So that is something that we need to reckon with. But the reason I didn't want to focus there in the book, and even some of the Rabbanim said, we want this to be a something that is good for all families. Even if somebody would say, maybe my kid is really sheltered or won't have access to pornography, and we'll talk about how realistic that is. I don't really think that's realistic. But in concept, uh, the 99% of this book applies even in an age where there was no pornography. Meaning because every person who I know, and I've spoken now at this point to thousands and thousands of parents and hundreds and hundreds of Rabbanim, and you ask them, what was your experience like, you know, going into puberty, the first time you had, you know, thoughts, fantasies, the first time you came across, you know, a, a wet dream, a, a, a struggle, then you maybe read something in a safer about this, and how was it for you? And almost inevitably, they turn a certain color, they start to get very uncomfortable. And I, I've almost never met somebody who said, wow, you know, those years of puberty and exposure and whatever was going on in my head was really comfortable and healthy and pleasant. It's just a matter of how difficult, how challenging, uh, how confusing, how stressful and how much, you know, guilt and shame is attached to it. And I think that that is a absolute travesty. Um, so really the, the, the book, it addresses that and then sort of in, in, a, in a little bit deals with pornography. Pornography is really, you know, can be a subject of an entirely other book, but it's certainly all the core concepts apply there. Um, how did I come to write this book? It actually, I never set out to actually write the book. There was a number of um, books written that were more relevant for a little bit more of the modern Orthodox world that never really made inroads into the more central to right-wing camps, uh, certainly not in the, you know, more Hasidish, more Litvish camps. Um, but, you know, the content I thought was decent, okay, in terms of educational points for parents to share with their kids. Where things started to get really tricky was there was quite a number of works put out in terms of how to deal once kids were challenged, and even before pornography, with their thoughts, with their fantasies, with slips and setbacks in terms of Zera or acting out, you know, and then going into pornography. And a lot of that material really troubled me in terms of not being honest, not being transparent, setting bars that, you know, maybe were for Yaakov Avinu Leonavi, uh, and and sometimes actually employing guilt and shame. And that was really bothersome to me. So when Guard Your Eyes really set out and said, hey, we want to do something more comprehensive. We want to really have you know, from a guide from soup to nuts. How do you educate? And then how do you deal with the ongoing challenges? So I really took that on uh, as the project. And 
sort of was revising things and then realized, no, this needs to start from the ground up, build something that's correct for the firm world, have tremendous uh, encouragement and input from Gedolim. I, I joke with many of the Maitis Gedolim at Torah that I don't know if there's been ever a safer written, but certainly in the last hundred years, that has more Gadol involvement. I've had thousands and thousands of edits. I have corrections on my commas, Biksav Yad from the Gedolim. Um, so it's really a work through integration of psychology and Torah Ashkafa. Again, Torah is very broad. I, I'm not a Chabad uh, individual, so it's not, uh, you know, it, it's certainly trying to fill the broader spectrum, not fit into one niche. Uh, but, I, you know, very sensitive to the broad spectrum, something that really, you know, anybody who's a Torah observant Jew could really utilize and help for their children from soup to nuts. Okay, just since you mentioned Gardrize, I want to get to that in a little bit, but give us a 60-second soundbite for those who are not familiar with Gardrize, what it is. I, I'm familiar, but I don't know that everyone is. So Guard Your Eyes is a wonderful organization that primarily deals with inappropriate content. So already when people are uh, really struggling with internet pornography and the like, um, they are trying to broaden their scope to do a little bit more on the prevention end. They primarily were involved in intervention. They were primarily involved with people already, you know, almost at the addiction level. They've lowered their floor and are trying to be a funnel so that somebody coming in will get targeted um, direction and guidance and help at the different stages. So we're working you know, on broadening a, a prevention side, but even on an intervention side, do you need therapy? Do you need 12 step? Do you just need certain tools? Do you just need some daily chizik emails? They have a very comprehensive view and it's, and it's uh, primarily online. So they're able to grow to massive scale in a way that no therapist or organization can do. So they have a very niche need and, and it's built on research and Tarashkafa. So they, they serve a very wide, uh, array of these services okay great um i think it's also correct and you'll correct me if i'm wrong guard rise is mostly dealing with people who are let's say older teens or young 20s people who are who are um in the shaduchim age or or starting shaduchim, i mean or and beyond those who are married or and are, are already in trouble and where today we want to focus a little bit more with those who are dealing with kids who are reaching puberty um just before it just after it which is i think the greatest uh hole the greatest lacuna in un undiscussed areas and i think it's uh is that accurate what i just said that, that's certainly accurate especially the, my my book emphasized already you know for kids in you know middle school you know third fourth grade and up for sure so uh yeah that you know most of the people seeking RDRI services are are well into their teenage years or above and and that's what it's designed for and this is also you know really designed to uh, aid parents as a as a primary prevention uh tool and educational tool for you know children you know before they enter puberty and then how to carry them through the you know those those years Perfect. Okay, so so this is a excellent uh, segue or setup to my next question, um, and I'll just give, give a preface to that. Is a lot of the listeners to you said my podcast? It's really my wife's podcast. I like to help out and step in when when appropriate and jump in if the guest is someone that's particularly fascinating to me. Obviously, obviously today's topic 
uh, was more appropriate for it to be done by a man. Um, but a lot of the listeners are younger parents who don't yet have their boys at this age. Um, I encourage them to listen very closely because you don't know what's coming your way. There's a tidal wave heading in your direction. And those who are at this age, they certainly know about it. So, so that, that's a perfect segue into my next question, which is, you know, I have Kanai Nahara, four boys of my seven children, and the youngest being 12-year-old and the oldest being 22-year-old. So I feel like I've seen a lot of the stages and the phases of the process. And I, I know there's definitely been progress. Like, let's be candid. My father never had had any conversation with me about this, about the birds, the bees, of any other, uh, this conversation never happened. My first adult um, guidance on this matter was well after I had already found out about it um, from friends and from all the wrong places. And uh, I I think it's great that, you know, I don't know your age, but you you look like you're closer to the range of age than I am. It's good that younger people are talking about it because frankly, you know, some of our good and some of our, our righteous elder, you know, mashpian people who are giving us guidance, they really have no idea of, you know, they know about the internet, but they cannot comprehend and fathom what you just described, the incredible three A's, accessibility, anonymity, et cetera, um, about this. So with all that in mind and focusing on the fact that it's 2023, when in fact is the right time to start talking to the kids? Because if you don't talk about the, don't talk about the kids, they're going to find out about it and they're going to get it about, uh, hear about it in all the wrong ways. So when is the right time and what does it look like? What does such a conversation look like? So it's an excellent question. So, so a few things. And, and you know, one of the real sticking points in terms of the book was, you know, uh, you know, I'm always pushing it for the age to be younger and younger. And, and you know, there's a lot of pushback in, in terms of that. So the, the, there's a real interesting paradox there where well before puberty starts, curiosity starts. So when do kids become curious about jokes, innuendo, dirty words, um, well before they actually start to experience any hormonal changes of puberty. So, you know, typically, you know, I, I you know, I, I also, you know, just uh, for context, you know, I, I have a 16 year old down to an infant. So, you know, I have a, you know, pretty wide spectrum, you know, my, myself, it just, you know, personally, my family, and obviously I've been treating over the years and consulting to hundreds and thousands of cases from the youngest ages through the oldest ages. So, I, you know, and I run a very diverse practice and, and all my consultation work covers from children all the way through. So what's happened is even before the internet, you know, so, my, my, you know, in elementary school, and I was in a very mainstream yeshiva in Brooklyn, uh, in fourth grade, I distinctly remember on the playground one day, one of my quote unquote chaverim was very happy to uh, teach me about this parsha. Nobody else would, no parents would, the rabbim would forget about it. Uh, but the kids, um, Actually, one or two just needed to, you know, thought that this was, you know, really good material to share. And wow, what was it? You know, if you had information on this, you were quite popular and you were a go-to guru if you knew anything. And half the time didn't even have to be legitimate and and, and definitely not appropriate and definitely not uh, with values or Torah attached to it. So and what's been very interesting for me is because so in, in my book where I was able to sort of land with the Gedolim's, uh encouragement and consent was that actually the conversation about marital intimacy precedes any discussion or issues of puberty because like you described most of the kids are going to find out about that during the ages between 9 and 11 if not even earlier today but certainly by 9 to 11 many kids are going to hear 
And even if you live in the most sheltered home and you're, you know, in an enclave, and I, I, I've spoken quite a number of times in uh, Chabad headquarters in Crown Heights in the, in the Rebbe's Moistus, and uh, they keep telling me it's happening earlier and earlier in the best Moistus with the most Hasidic families, that their kids are hearing about it and, and in ways that are much more graphic than they ever imagined. And so the goal in general, and I think this is a, a very important Chabad notion, was to not play defense. We don't want to have to, oh, wow, now I have to undo all of this uh, unfortunate exposure, inappropriateness, in inappropriate contact. It's always, let's go on offense. We have so much to offer in terms of Torah, in terms of values, in terms of Ashkafa. And when I did a, you know, a, a, a nice interview with Rabbi Wyatt Jacobson about this uh, a number of months ago, we, we talked about that at length, that like here, it's as if we're mum on the subject because we have nothing to say or it's totally taboo. The Torah is explicit about this, you know, from the get-go. And that's what's also been bizarre is we talk about this as if, oh, because of the age of pornography. For me, it's literally backwards because if any kid actually knew how to translate, Chumash and Rashi, forget, forget any advanced svarim, forget the Mishnais, forget the Gemaras of Kedushin and Ksubis and Yavamas, just, just Chumash Rashi. You start literally Parshas Barashas where Rashi talks about the snake watching Adam and Chava be intimate and you go down the line to Yehuda and Tamar and you go to, you know, everything open clear uh, the list of arias that we read on Yom Kippur includes homosexuality and bestiality. I mean, there is nothing that isn't straight out there. We've come to be able to resort that the kids don't know how to translate and they can't read a Pasuk or a Chumash Rashi with them, with, by themselves. So we could give them these, you know, euphemisms and things, or we could skip it, avoid it. But the truth is we have a lot to give and a lot to offer. And that's the main goal is preemption. It is much harder, you know, the Gemara compares writing on blank paper versus writing on written on paper. You know, when you're giving over the information and the values and in the tone and the kindness and compassion and calm and relaxed, and this is something beautiful and holy, but private and sensitive, that, if that's the first imprint for a child, that's going to serve them for the rest of their lives. If the imprint is that they heard it, you know, in some inappropriate way on the school bus, in the playground, or God forbid, on the internet with porn, that's also going to serve them for the rest of their lives. And it's going to be, and that, I'm not trying to catastrophize. I can, I know I've seen hundreds of people have that experience and Barsham live totally healthy, functional, great lives. But you're, you're starting behind the eight ball. So the goal is, from already from a middle school level, to talk to them very straightforwardly, calmly, explicitly, but without too much detail. We don't want to give an entire you know, chassan or kala class to them, but we want them to know exactly how marital intimacy works so that they have a sense. My parents told this to me. I know the information. When somebody's going to tell, what is that word? What's that innuendo? I know what it is. I sense that it's okay, it's beautiful, it's the first mitzvah in the Torah. Uh, I, my parents are a resource on this. I'm totally calm when I hear this. I don't feel like, oh, I can't be adults or not trustworthy, but the kid on the corner or the internet is my source of information. And that's where I'm gonna go back to if I have anything confusing or a question or something that's really confounding me or even experience that's difficult, I have resources who could talk to me about this. People get hung up on the exact age and the exact content, what line to say, how open or how not. To me, it is what we in psychology call a defense. Because I have all these, you know, big intellectual questions, how young, oh, that's too young. Are you going to scare? Are you going to open up? Are you going to open up curiosity? How, why do you have to say it so explicitly not? I get to not have the conversation. My biggest message to people is you have to show up for the kids. 
almost everybody is in agreement. Very few things that Jews agree on, but I think almost all Jews today agree that you know the internet and pornography and the sexual struggles and the messages from the media are an enormous challenge for people, let alone boys entering puberty. I think that's almost something you could get a consensus on. And what do we do? We pretend it doesn't exist. We talk about phones and filtering and maybe blocking or you know tracking software. And I'll meet you at the chuppah. I'll walk you down. I hope everything's smooth. We say it's the hardest challenge of a bacher's life. The biggest challenge is the unprecedented. And what do we do for them? We put our heads in the sand, pretend. I hope, I hope you don't come across certain swarm that cause me depression. I hope you'll find better things, but I'm out. We're literally recklessly leaving our kids to struggle on their own. And as parents, we all want to be there for our kids. I think it's not because anybody's trying to hurt their children or not be there. I think they, like you said, almost none of us have had their parents do this. We didn't have a, a clear path. We don't have education on this. It feels uncomfortable. And the reason, you know, I really wanted the book sponsored for Abonim and Mechanchim was because parents are not going to be able to do this unless it's coming that this is the Torah source. You know, this is not something all oh, weird psycholo psychological information, new agey, new thing, changing Messiah, Hadish, awesome in Atari. You know, that was my first question I talked to Rabbi Wyatt Jacobson about, you know, is this a new thing, Messiah? He said the only way we're going to, tr to transmit our Messiah is not that we do this. If, if we want to transmit the Messiah, we have to be the bearers of the Messiah. We have to transmit our values, our information, what the Torah has to say on this, what Hasidus has to say on this, what, what, what is the beauty that we have to say on this. And so I think that we have to start early. We start with the actual information before they hit puberty. And it actually is helpful because also you're not dealing with when they have all these drives and arouses and fantasies. And now they just heard this and it's going to fit. Before they even have drives, they just have curiosity. and They're just hearing these terms. You could put it into a very logical context, very calmly. And now you're a resource. And then as they're heading towards puberty, each kid is on their own, you know, 10 to 12, 10 to 13, depending on the kid, depending on the environment, you're going to start talking more about what are the physical changes that are going to happen, what are the challenges of fantasies, of thoughts, of what's called hirhurim, and then of wet dreams, imikra laila, itzazara, masturbation, other, other, you know, in, stimulus from girls, from other boys in yeshiva, how to be safe, how to avoid abuse, all of those things are laid out very clearly in the book at developmentally appropriate stages and how to have those conversations. But the biggest thing, obstacle is discomfort. And it's not, you know, it's something that's bizarre. Even in the secular world where, you know, parents will watch R-rated movies with the kids, but they don't talk to them about this. There's something deeply uncomfortable for adults to talk to children about this. And that's been the major impetus is to help people get over that so that we could actually be there when they need us most. Fantastic. Fantastic. You know, one of the uh, manahalim of one of the yeshivas where one of my children went to, um, was that big enough? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, he, in, in one of the pre, you know, registration um, packets that was sent out, you know, they, they have a whole technology thing. We'll get to the technology thing later if there's even any time for that. Um, but he said, 100% of your children have seen pornography. And it was a little bit shocking. Um, but as I live a little longer, and I'm not starting my first child into Masifta, but my third, I, I, I think he's right. Um, and it's it's frightening, but it, but everything you're saying is true. And and all right, so to, to that end, I, I think a big part of why parents have a hard time having this conversation um, with their children is because it's it, it feels like contradictory. You know, I, sorry, in, I asked before, how, how does such a conversation look? I'll tell you, perhaps why having this conversation is so difficult is because perhaps we as parents ourselves don't have the language 
how to say it to our children. In other words, we're kind of like, you know, straddling the border. We're, we're sitting on both sides of the issue. On one hand, we're saying, listen, this is Kedusha. This is holy. This is the greatest mitzvah. This is the first mitzvah. This is so important. On the other hand, this is such an Avera, et cetera. And if you open up any svarim, you know, you know, Chassidish svarim and, and, and certainly um, uh, others, uh, Musr svarim, the, the threats, you know, the, 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 it's, it's so frightening causes, you know, and, and we ourselves as the parents often don't have the language, and that's why I'm asking, what is the language? How do I, on one hand, say it's holy? On the other hand, I say it's usr, it's a sin. Well, it's a sin now, but it's going to be holy later. But also, don't worry about grappling with it because everyone grapples with it, but also it's not okay to do it. So how how, how is it normal for everyone, but also not okay? It feels, even, even at, coming at it from the adult side, it feels like a contradiction. So how do we convey that message that feels somewhat so contradictory to the child who's young? They're, they're 11, 12, 13. They really don't get it. Okay, okay. so I just want to go back to, to a comment you said, because this often is a cause of where things just go off the rails. And again, for defensiveness. So the idea of, let's say, 100% exposed to pornography. So, so anytime you have a, a theory that, you know, it's is all or nothing, you're, you know, all it takes is one to disprove you. So if we find one kid in Kleisho that uh, wasn't exposed to pornography, that number is now by the wayside. And even when parents, what happens is people just flat out reject that because that, that's probably not true. It's probably not 100% exposed to pornography. What is the other way when I ask people, uh, even Rabbeim, in the in the in the most uh, right wing yeshivish or Hasidish moistus, what percentage of your talmidim uh, talmidos get to their chassan and kala class and have no idea what this is? They have no clue. They never heard. They mamish, you know, clueless. Almost everybody will tell me an extraordinarily small percentage. So the question is: so the vast majority are getting the education, and it's not from us. So where's it from? So the best case scenario is it's like somebody giving them accurate information. You know, in the old days, we used to look up dictionaries or encyclopedias, you know, but forget about it. today. It's Google. Um, so, you know, it's probably going to be Google or it'll be a friend and it, it will not be Tsunua. It won't be our values. It won't be anything. Um, so I, I just want to point that people get stuck on the percentages. The, the, the point is the other way. Let's say it's only one or two kids in every class. How many children exposed does it take to then get the information spread around? That's one point. Also, you see, we're already back in the defensive. Oh, oh my gosh, we're having to fight against the information. That's why I went back to the Chumash. Why, why we don't have a concept in that ignorance is innocence. Wow, the bigger an Amaretz you are, the more Chashiv, right? So if you never learned Chumash Rashi, you never learned Mishnais, you never learned uh, Mishnah Nashim or any of these things, wow, you're holy. We've never said such a thing. And there's actually very open letters about the Tanya without the Rebbe wrote about when they wanted to, you know, skip parts of Hamashim in certain places. They asked, you know, maybe they're inappropriate. There's an incredibly explicit response that how could somebody even, how could you even have the, the, the narcissism, the audacity to say this part of the Torah is not from, this is not holy. He says that every word in Torah is pure and holy and needs to be you know, addressed, and you have a chiv to learn it. He goes through, and he brings a raya actually from Unklis. He says, maybe it's only for the Purma. He said, but Unklis was translating for, for people who, were, who didn't even know how to translate. And he said, Unklis tries every single pasuk in the Torah. So he brings down, the author brings down. It's clear as day that every single person is supposed to learn this and needs to learn this, and there's not a problem with the information. 
this is partially the biggest issue is we're bringing our adult baggage to this. We're bringing our own history often of guilt, of shame, of like this kind of conflict. Oh my gosh, is it tummy? It's holy, it's confused. I never had any sorting out of this. And we're bringing all of our, both our experiences, our feelings, our confusion, our shame into the conversation. And the biggest thing, you know, is to try to get to ourselves to a place of sorting this out as adults so that we come across that this isn't something that's bad or problematic. Uh, but I do think you raised excellent questions. So you, you talk about sort of the- Before you get to that, uh, just, I think, and I, I, I actually love what you said and I agree with that. I think it's spot on that a lot of times we are bringing our own baggage, but maybe some of the baggage was because our Rabbeim skipped sugyas and Gemara. And if you want to ask any Bachar which sugya they, they need to get for her for yeshiva, find the sugya that the, that the Rebbe skipped. And they know it, Rashi Tesis, Ritba, Rajba, they know it better than any other sugya because that was the one that was skipped. So maybe there was, I'm, I'm not saying that, that, yeah. that Alter Rebbe was endorsing that behavior, but I'm saying that did happen when we were, I don't know if it, I haven't been in the classroom in a while, I don't know if that's still happening. Actually it did, what my children came home from school recently and there was a certain set actually you know what i'm sorry i'm going to correct myself the rebbe did teach it he changed some of the translations but he didn't skip it and i thought that was actually brilliant right so 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 again yes i think this all stems in some ways from the adult discomfort that we're 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 dancing around we're playing games we're not being authentic we're not being genuine and without saying a word we've created with our silence something that speaks volumes and what does it speak you could talk to your kids about everything today right about anything and everything i could talk about hashkafa i could talk about what's going on in the world i could talk about uh, russian ukraine i could talk about you know drugs what's the one thing that's taboo we don't go there nobody had to tell a kid we don't talk you never had to have me maybe should i talk to my father about this or not somehow you had clarity on that, right? This is a no-fly zone. That comes from our deep discomfort and our kids pick up on it. And then that's actually a catastrophe, not just information-wise, because the information, who cares exactly, you know, somebody, let's say they get it from an encyclopedia, where it's, you know, clean and true, okay? That, the problem is, what's the association? This is something, it's bad information, it's taboo. Nobody could talk to me about this. Definitely nobody from, not my parents, not my rabbeim. This is the underbelly of the world. So it's our own discomfort that we're transmitting almost to our 100%, children. 100%. And, and, and we're transmitting it by, by not speaking. We think, okay, we're leaving it neutral. It's the exact opposite. What we're transmitting is taboo, Guilt, shame, inaccessibility. Somehow, if you're gonna struggle with this, you're about you're in unspeakable terms. We could talk about every mitzvah naver in the Torah. We could talk about everything else, not this. So then, when a kid is going to inevitably struggle, because every human will struggle, 100% of people will struggle. There were only two that Chazal bring down that didn't have even a lapse in any way, and that was Yaakov Avinu and Eliyahu Anavi. So not only did they struggle, but on some level, every other person in history had some lapse in Yonah Kedusha in these, in these matters. So there in that, we could say with 100% certainty that if you're healthy and actually all your hormones and everything is working properly, you're going to struggle, right? So that we could say, so they're going to struggle. And then what's going to be the association to that? I'm struggling with the unspeakable. It's just, we don't have to be a, you know, a PhD in psychology to understand what that's going to do without anything else. So 
Um, that is incredibly important. So let's go back to your, your, your question in terms of holy Tameh, the biggest mitzvah, worst avera. It's really the same thing, meaning we have a concept, Shlomo Melech says, everything is zel umazah, everything is corresponding, right? A nuclear power plant can power up a city, a nuclear power plant can destroy a city. The more energy something has, the more beauty, the more kedusha, the more holiness, then on its flip side, however you want to refer to that, you want to call it the dark side, you want to call it klippa, you want to call it yetzahara, whatever you want to call it, the shadow in psychological terms, Yin yang, I don't care. Whatever that flip side is going to be, is going to have to be the opposing force of tremendous darkness. So what happens is exactly what you described. Um, in the literature world, one of the, the, the famous mashgichim, Shlomo Volba, wrote about this. He says that we, we have this concept that, you know, it's tame, tame, tame. This is totally us. So the Yitzhar is terrible. It's everything's terrible. Then under the chuppah, you know, under that skylight, all the tumma flew off. And now go do it. It's the biggest mitzvah. That is an absolute disaster of Chinuch. Now it's what, you know, in, in, in fancy Gemara terms, it's called Hutra. Oh, the Tommy became Mutter. <laughs> no, we have to give out an expression that what's holy here is because also we, we use holy because it's euphemistic, like, ooh, right? And of course, there are many Kabbalistic things that we don't have access to. But what I loved in my conversation with Rabbi Jacobson and, and, and many other uh, Chabad institutions where I spoke about, they saw it that in Tanya, that this, what is the one place that we're closest to God? We most could be like a creator. What's the only way we are closest to being a creator? It's with this energy. You could teach students, you could do other things that have some similarity, but the place where a human is most similar, where he's actually like a buyer, he is creator, is using and harnessing this energy. And so the flip side of that is going to be tremendous darkness. So the beauty, the holiness is you're a creator. And even when it's not for creator, because other kids think, oh, for Jews, you're only allowed to have intimacy for having children. No, we know from very clear Torah sources that even if a wife, can no longer have children and there's mitzvahs even after or that that the mitzvah applies as a standalone mitzvah and it's a beautiful thing because of the bonding because of closeness and the flip side of that when when Hillel was asked by the girl what's Torah on one foot friendship camaraderie connection to Hashem connection to others connection to yourself so this is the deepest energy that when used properly brings connection brings bonding and brings the next life into the world. The flip side of it, when you use it, right? So when you use it totally selfishly, which is the exact opposite, it is to use with another in connection and to bring about life, which is the ultimate of being like God, to be a giver, to shine light, to share. When you use it by yourself for your own pure pleasure without any other purpose, that is what it means, live atala. It is to waste. Well, I mean, the seed is going to waste anyway. Your body is not using that same seed now and five years from today when you get married. Those, the body recycles that every couple of weeks. So what does it mean to waste? It's going to waste anyhow. No, 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 the waste in terms of its purpose. So you're wasting this nuclear energy. You're taking that it's supposed to be used for the highest ideal, and you're using it for selfishness, for animalistic desires, for things like that. And that's why you have these dual messaging. You have the most beautiful, lofty thing, the first mitzvah in the Torah. And you have this message. And on the flip side, that there's heaviness there. Now, 
And it's but, an it's yeah. that's easy for someone my age to comprehend. Mm. That. Also, I'm married already, so mm. struggle is a lot less. When right. you're 11, 12, you're in the heart of of puberty, and your hormones are raging, and 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 your and your body um, occasionally is doing things on its own. Yeah. It, Said a wet, a wet dream in the night, they can't control it. And basically, they said, I just did Levatella when I didn't intend to do it. And sometimes um, they can't control themselves and, and they do do it. And before we even get to this psychological elements of the shame and, and, and how that becomes its own cycle and a problem, how do I convey to, the, to, the, to a young mind? I, I get your message. Say right. that to a 12 year old. Right. I'm, I'm 13. Say it to me as a 13 year old. So first of all, I, I don't want to start with just with that message, meaning because we're already starting again on the wrong foot. We have this whole conflict. How right. I you have to have gotten there in advance. I, no, 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 in a different way, meaning very simply, I, you know, actually, just, to, just to, to address your point more directly, the, a big part of the book is putting this whole concept, Kedusha, struggle, the whole issue of, because the kids are going to struggle. This is not like, oh, wow, Zimmerman gave such a beautiful schmooze. So now from nine till 24, until I'm married, I'm going to be fine. I, there's, that's delusional thinking of the highest levels. Even when you're married, you're going to have struggles. This is part and parcel. So the central focus of the hashkafa that we're going to give is why on earth did Hashem create struggle and how to put this into context? Because what happens with this is, even the question alludes to the fact, nobody ever asks me, how could there be so many surim of Lashon Hara when everybody speaks Lashon Hara and it's normal? Nobody ever came to me. I'm so challenged by this. How could on one hand we say it's such a beautiful thing to have a pure tongue, such a terrible thing to have speak Lashon Hara, and how am I supposed to give over this message? I never met somebody who had this question. Bittol Taira, Hashem, talking there. I tell people all the time, nobody ever came to my office totally neurotic. They speak during Chazar Sashat. It says, God will avoid him in his soul. It's great. My sin is greater than I can bear. That was the Russian that Kayan used when he murdered Hevel, right? And Hashem, you know, chastised him. He says, I, I can't bear this. That's what the halacha uses for talking to Hazar Shat. Nobody ever came to me banged up about that. It's exactly part of the nature of this is because we get very uncomfortable with the whole sexual topic. And we think that it's in Yoni Tznias and Kedushin. It, it takes a place in Shulchan Aruch, in the middle of Shulchan Aruch. It's not in the, like a back addendum in a paper bag. You have to go, right? It's not in the different parts of the Torah. Right? So the first step before anything else is to just put it under the our umbrella of Torah, of Hasidus, of struggle. As I should make it that I have so many challenges, that so many people, all the mitzvahs, to keep all the mitzvahs. A 13-year-old boy is mechoyev in keeping all the mitzvahs, Lashon Hara and Bittu Torah, and, and, and being kind and being respectful of his parents and not speaking any negative words to his friend, right? Oh, oh, meaning this is just part of that. Yes, it's a big struggle during these years, extraordinary struggle. And in every other thing we say, yes, you're, you're going to fail. In order to grow, you're going to fail and you're going to have struggle. And in general, Today, especially, the vast majority of Gedolim who lived in the last 50 years, and you can look through the Litvish to the Hasidish, they said, pick yourself up and move on. Don't wallow in guilt, don't wallow in shame, right? From across the board. And especially in this topic, besides for the book, I have, Baruch Hashem, 80 plus pages of pure marmakoimis of this topic from the Hasidish world, from the Litvish world. And, and again, it's one place where you see tremendous unanimity that, except for certain very isolated things in the last 50 years for sure it's all about 
Don't focus, move on, distract and move forward it, rather than you're going to boil in whatever and for who knows what, you know, and, and, and almost no mainstream goggle, whether in the Hasidic world or Litvish world uh, endorses that. There are a few people like horror. There are a few people particularly who have a very loud voice on the Internet who even have movies of scary stuff and, and, and has probably the most hits of any, you know, Jewish production because we're, we, we, we like to dispense with horror. But yes, so like, like, like the pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and people look for that and it feels very religious. That's, uh, that's a broader conversation, you know, why, why that's associated with religion and, and the influence of the Catholic Church on us. Okay, that's a whole different topic. But fundamentally, what we're putting this in, and, and the book goes through very clearly, that question that teens ask, what do you want from me? You, you tell me this is also, you tell me not to do this, and what am I supposed to do? And that's going to come up. And so instead of, again, waiting for them, because they're not going to express it so clearly in that way, how do we impart to them our values about struggle, about failure, about what happens when you're down, about what the Yetzirah is trying to do to you is to tell you you're got what you're really learning. Come on, you just saw this last night. You just masturbated. You know, you're not, you're, nothing counts anyway. You're terrible. You're a fraud. All of that to contextualize that explicitly and preemptively as the Yetzirah, and certainly once they struggle to double down on those messages. And that is the entire uh, really second half of the book, which is in some way to me a bigger value add than the conversation points for, you know, preemptively is how do you deal with struggle? How do you integrate this in Tashkafa? What are you going to do with the inevitable setbacks? How do you help them from the outside and while they're going to struggle with all of the kinds of concepts? So we want to take whatever your value system is, if that's more Litvish, if that's more Hasidish, if that's more Chabad Hasidish, what does Chabad Hasidish have to say about, you know, having challenges both ways. Like, like they, it reminds me, the Alta Rebbe describes, you know, a person has these sexual thoughts come to him during davening. And he thinks, oh man, what is wrong with me that I have such dirty thoughts during davening? The Rebbe says, you don't have a sexual problem. You have a narcissism. You have a guided problem. Who the heck do you think you are? <laughs> you're not going to have any of these thoughts. And I love the line that you're not crazy. You're pregnant with twins. You know, this line from Rivka. Right? We have to, to teach the kids this is how Hashem made you. You're going to have the loftiest of the lofty, and you're going to have the darkest of the dark, and it's not just sexual. It's going to be with jealousy. It's going to be with greed. It's going to be every dark aspect of the human psyche you have, and not just you have. Who made it? God. For what purpose? Because that's exactly our whole purpose in life is bringing light to those places. It's normal. You have two neshamas, and they're at war. Part of the war. Exactly. So if I understand what you're saying correctly, you're basically saying both parts. First of all, be uh, proactive, get get ahead of it before this is a, a, a biological struggle. Um, like this, the language around it is going to be language that you fed them, not some kid on on the on, on the on the field. Um, additionally, on some level, defang it. And even though yes, this is really an etzimdika um, challenge, that's why it's so. Kedusha and also such a such an avera, but defang and say you know on some level just like like you said about just like you struggle with lashon hara and you know I I feel that you know maybe this is the time to switch into the uh, psychologist psychiatrist hat that you that you have um, is is because of the essential nature of this particular avera maybe because this is the way in which we are the closest to the avister that's why the shame element of it is so strong so you're right um there's no one who doesn't go through a day that doesn't uh, speak lashon hara yet very few of us sit in, in this cycle of shame and guilt over lashon hara that we did we said yeah i did it whoops i blew it and and they go onward um it's natural for us to know to go 
go do that. With this one, it's a little bit of a harder struggle because it is such an essential element. It's so uh, so close, it's touching the core of our neshama, which is both what makes it most holy, but also what makes us feel such great shame around it. And nevertheless, our job as parents and machanchem is to try to defang it um, to the extent that we can. So, so yeah, this very interesting point you raised. Uh, actually, in writing this, the Gedoyim were giving me a bit of a pushback, even to the comparison of a Lashon Harabitl Torah, because um, they point out that, yes, this does have some way, right? If you speak Lashnar and you're witty and you really come up with a zinger, you're still, you're using your, your seichel, you're using your mind, you're using your intellect, it's a little bit more neshama-based. With this, we fall very much into our animalistic drives, so there is a certain more intense shame. But you're absolutely right. The reason, you know, the first, uh, you know, Adam and Chava, before they sinned, they went unclothed because there was absolutely no shame attached to this, Right, they woke, and then they did. They ate from a tree of Eitzadas. They didn't do a sexual sin. Why they also uncover their body parts? Well, the Christians confused us that we saw the pictures of Adam and Eve in the museums. We thought that they did something sexual. It had nothing to do with anything. They sense once they sense that now this Yitzhar internalized in them. Oh, you will have the desire for now to to lust and for for selfishness and for that. It's now you want to cover those organs that could be misused in that way. Um, but again, there's also the flip side, and I always tell people the messaging of covering what's most holy. In Torah, what do we cover? We cover Aaron Kaidish, Tvilin, Mezuzas. We don't cover the dark stuff, we cover the beautiful stuff. But so, yes, there isn't an, an innate uh, shame. But even that, I, I, I wanted to be very clear about that as well, because that becomes very confusing. Uh, one of the places probably I go the most deep in terms of psychological knowledge in the book is talking a bit about guilt and then shame. So, you know, it'll take us too deep, but, but the, the simple question becomes, on one hand, you know, if you use modern psychological terms, Brene Brown and things like that, in terms of how dangerous shame is, shame is linked up with, you know, uh, anxiety, depression, suicide, eating disorders, you know, like just awful. And so you say, so, I, you know, at first, when I was first doing this, I said, okay, so obviously Busha and the tire can't be shame. You know, can't be what we're talking about. But the Gedol gave me pushback and said, Shlomi, it sure sounds like shame. So how could, on one hand, we say it's all toxic, and then what are the hallmarks of a Jew? What are the three hallmarks that we're children of Avram is by Shonim? We're shame-faced. Oh, man, we're, we're, we're all, we're all, we're all going to be neurotics. You know, it's like the, the, the quintessential caricature of the neurotic Jew. Is that what this is supposed to be? If You know, I don't know where they learn in the Archa Sadiqim, you know, I don't know if that goes into the Chabad world, but he says you should put Busha above all of your other mitos, right? So here in the Torah, we're lifting up Rabbi Yochanan okay, he's, he, he's across the board, right? Says to his students what the bracha is, you should have shame, you know, like you have a, you know, a human seeing you, you should have fear of, you know, Hashem. They say, come on, that, that's it. He says, yeah, because a person doesn't do a virus with that kind of shame. So the question becomes, how do I deal with this? On one hand, we psychologically research sounds like shame is terrible. And on the other hand, the Torah is lauding it at the highest levels. So really, essentially, we discuss how shame is just an emotion. Shame is a feeling that, and it actually is the only feeling that has universal expression. You, you sort of avert your eyes and you pull into yourself. You're sort of hiding from something, either yourself or another. So the, that's just the core emotion. Now, the question that I, you know, sort of the answer I came up with is what's the source of that? And I think that's very crucial. One, the healthy Torah source is 
you have a sense that really you're primarily your pure neshama. You're above being like an animal. You have unique capacities, unique uh, opportunities for holiness. And so when you don't act in accordance with that, you feel, oh, that was lesser for me. You know, in the old days, they used to say, sepasnish, that, come on, you're, you're better than that, right? And that is probably very healthy shame because it doesn't, oh, I'm terrible and I'm bad and I'm no good and look at how awful I am. It's like, I'm beautiful. My parents and Rabbeim are beautiful. Our lineage is beautiful. The Torah is beautiful. I can't defile this. I have the crown jewels. I can't, you can't mud on it, right? That's one feeling of shame. The toxic feeling of shame is what I call living with your false self. That is when you be, let's call it that other neshama gets eclipses your truth, meaning, oh yeah, I am bad. I'm terrible. I'm not a real bentor. I'm a fraud. I'm a sicko. I'm a pervert. I'm, you know, this is not real. Look at what I think about. Look at how dirty my mind is. When you align with that and feel badly that, that is literally, you know, the devil's playground. That there is nothing that the Yetzirah wants more. He'll take you feeling that way than a thousand of errors. Why? Because if you get stuck in that, you're done. You're in total distance from Hashem already. You're totally living in falsehood. And now you're, you're also open to every other in the Torah because you have nothing holding you anymore. If you, in, you know, imbibe this sense that I'm unworthy and I'm no good, and if anybody knew the true me, the true guy who thinks and looks at and does these things, they would want nothing to do with me. If you get embedded in that, you are gone both in ruchnius and psychologically. And of course, they really have one origin. And, and I, I'll take it a step further. You can tell me if I'm wrong about this. I, I think that literally leads to addiction, porn addiction, um, uh, and, and that can um, spiral out to, 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 to acting out in marriages, et cetera, because you feel so badly and you're so uncomfortable and you need to numb that discomfort. And you know if you're not uh, prone to alcohol or drugs, so you're going to go to the same thing that got you in the problem in the first place. And then it just becomes a vicious cycle and feeds on itself. And you just, you fall deeper and deeper into this um, bad feeling, depression, anxiety, shame, and, 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 and the solution, the, the problem becomes the solution. And then it exacerbates the problem and it becomes an endless cycle. A thousand percent. And that is, the, that's why I spent the most of all psychological symptoms, you know, sort of experiences and feelings in the book. I talk about shame because if I wanted to actually create pornography addiction, sex addictions, destroy marriages, I would have the kids feel terrible about themselves and how bad this is. And you're garnished and your learning is nothing and your davening is a fraud and you're, you're a disgusting person. I want nothing to do with you. What? what do you mean? Maybe that'll keep them from Aver. No, no, no. That, that sense that I'm unworthy, I'm cut off, I'm, acher, I'm on the other side, that is the best way to then, what's protecting me? Yes, that exactly will, will cause the problem in its own right. And exact surveys the problem. And that is literally one of the number one gateways to, like you said, to addiction. Because, and then, like you said, how do I deal with such pain and intensity with the drug closest drug at hand? What is it? You know, it's part of my body and everything else is either in my mind or readily accessible. I will just go there. So absolutely. Um, so it's actually this paradox, the places and still some of those places that are still using that fire and brimstone from those places, I get the worst possible phone calls in terms of how many boys are doing the most inappropriate things. Literally, I could track it to the to, to some of the messaging around. All right, so let me let me let me um, springboard off of that for a moment. You know, there was a guy 
who uh, a, a guy I knew from yeshiva. I'll, I'll just keep it as vague as possible. Mm-hmm. And and you know the the, the Halakha Svarim do say some pretty rough things out there. And this guy, you know, clearly he wasn't spoken to by uh, by the right people. So his method of addressing this challenge was weakening his entire body. So he like he barely ate food. He would drink tea, and he literally, you know, you, you talk about the uh, our ancestors in Russia and the gulag. This guy was 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 eating tea and bread to weaken his body. Figuring if he could weaken his body, he can weaken the the taiva, the the the, the tension, and uh, and it worked, I guess, to a degree. And he got married, and he was divorced a few months later because it, it didn't solve any problem. It really blew right back up in his face. The, the, having said that, the sperm say that. You know, I, I heard a story um, um, recently. I don't know if it was from Waiwai or Rabbi Shays, Tal, but well, well, it's somehow in, in relation to one of these topics. It was this also a story with the Alter Rebbe that there, there that some it was written in some safer that that if a person has a um, um, has a Hitzah on Yom Kippur, they're going to die. And he came to the Alter Rebbe with with that claim. The Alter Rebbe, I don't know if he laughed or but but he <laughs> something to that effect and said yeah, it wasn't talking about you. So right. so put on your 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 Talmud Chacham hat for a second. How do we how do we uh, reconcile the two? So so that that that's you know first of all we're, we're never going to be able to explain every source and every marmokim especially within his context. I think like the Alter Rebbe was alluding to that. Who, let's talk in general. Nothing to do with this topic. Who can handle that kind of messaging? Period of okay, it's the worst thing and it's terrible and there's no chuba right. And, and first of all, going way way back, not in the last fifty years. Few hundred years already, there were those who said that those people who call themselves Haredim because they're telling people there's no chuba for this are really chaserim, that they're lacking because they're going to cause untold destruction in Kleister. So this was already a couple hundred years ago where this was taken up. And certainly as the generations, whether it's weaker or or the messaging needs different, or that's clear. And if you go through, like I said, particularly in the last 50 years, um, you're going to see much more toned down and even places addressing what does that mean oh the, that place there's no chuva that mean okay but shabbos counts for chuva or you know Malamito, or you get forgiven as a chasana there are a thousand different outs if a person and, and here's the thing it's the same thing so in all these other places in all the other averis right when a guy says kriyashma every day and he says af, i'm going to be angry or he reads the toys with he reads that they don't come to my office neurotic they don't do these things. They don't. They don't try to 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 eat tea biscuits and and tea and and, and bread. Well, how come? Can I get kulam? How come he wasn't doing it for that? So what happens is we confound the Yerushalayim place with the underlying psychological place. So yes, we talked about how there is something poor in the neshama of, of the busha, but a lot of this is shame. I always say, you know, if, if everybody walked around with a little digital t- tick t- ticker that to- just read out your thoughts and fantasies. 85% of this would be wouldn't, irrelevant. Why? Because you would see, oh, he has that thought, and he has this thought, and he has this thought. After the reason this is, because the one thing that happens in my own mind, Lashon Hara, I hear and see. Chazar Sashat, I see people talk their diamond. Bittel Tire, I see. Right? What's the place that's totally in my own head? You know, my own thoughts and fantasies and behavior. So that, I think I'm, it's only me, and I think that's why it's terrible. So when you then encounter, when you're starting from a place of a lack of proper self-worth, when you're starting from a place of shame or guilt, and then you add the lighter fluid of a uh, maramakam like that, then you're off to the races. But 
healthier people, they read that, they, okay, I don't know, the Torah, you know, uses very strong language about many, many things, but I contextualize it because I feel I'm normal, my drives are normal, my struggles are normal, so I don't know, good kasha. You know, it's a logical question, I'll go ask my Rebbe and Ashkaf a question, how do you fit with this? Fine. When you have psychologically all the vulnerabilities, and then you come across and exactly, and you're unable to go speak about it, so you go, oh my gosh, I'm a murderer, or I'm terrible, I'm going to do this, then that could literally destroy people's lives. And the, those attempts at suppression, same thing, even, it doesn't even matter if it works. That is not a void decision. That is a Christian idea, fundamentally, to, to, to do that. And already, again, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, people said that people confounded, you know, the Mesil Shisharm talks about this. He wasn't talking about Hasidim, as you call Hasidim. He said the ones who thought they were Hasidim, they thought it was Viduim Aroichim and Tsoimis Kashim. He's long confessions and big fasts. And he said they lost completely. When the Even the Rebbe says in Tanya that today's generation is not, not uh, right. we're not supposed to be fasting for Tshuva. We're not, we're not, we're not like that anymore. Right. So that, you know, when you get to the Baal Shem Tov, you get to Lady Yitzchak what would he take a Bacher today struggling with this? He would tell him to go fasting tea biscuits or put him on his shoulders and dance around that you're a hero. Yeah. No, no, so I, I, I think that's the real messaging. Not only do we have to, you know, get rid of the shame and guilt, which is on the negative side, why shouldn't a boy today feel like Yosef at Tzadik Mamish? He had Pratifa for one year. This guy, from the time he's, you know, nine till, till, till he dies, he's going to have more exposure and more nisyonis and more bombardment of information and struggles and his, and his hormones raging than who knows who in our history. You know, and instead of us celebrating this challenge, this struggle and saying, Wow, that's how you got called the Kaddish. That's how you got, you know, we, we have these different rebels that were called Kaddish, right? And we have Yosef HaTzadik. How do you earn that name? Well, because well, you're a big masmid. You've done so well. Yeah, when you fight with this struggle. So not only do we have to, you know, again, defensively get away from the negative, we have to employ extraordinary positive messages that who made the internet? Who made this? David should have went to sleep in the last de couple decades. And now, oh my gosh, what happened? Khalilah, right? So, oh, wow, you're supposed to challenge, be challenged with this. And we know towards the end of, you know, the times that these are going to be enormous challenges. And you're supposed to bring out light from the, what you would think are the darkest of darkest places. So you are absolute heroes. And our boys, instead of feeling guilty about this, need to feel they're, they're, they're what we call real tzivis Hashem. Yes, there's a beautiful, you know, army of Hashem. What's, how much more tzivis Hashem could you be? Where are you really in the battle, day in, day out? Fighting in Hashem's army is not just what's in public with your mitzvah tank. You're with your tank internally that you have this challenge and you're redirecting your thoughts from these thoughts back to davening, back to learning, back to hanging out with friends, playing ball so that you could not have the buildup of energy, exercising, listening to music, doing hobbies so that you could stay a Kaddish Vitar. Then you are the literally, you know, then you're our alpha team. You're our, <laughs> you're our SEAL team six. How many people? In, in the whole world today, right, what percentage of the world are fighting that battle against this? So you have all the non-Jews, then you have Jews who are unaffiliated to from Jews to actually Jews who are fighting this battle. These are literally, it's probably 0.001% of the population. That is literally the SEAL Team 6, the Tzivis Hashem of Tzivis Hashem, the most elite forces are today's Bakram grappling with this and fighting with this. Why isn't that the messaging broadcast everywhere? That should be on Times Square billboards. 
Right. You know, so I, 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 th I think that is making its way into, into the system. I think, you know, I remember even myself as a Bachar, I remember one of the greatest kindnesses that one of, I don't remember if it was one of their Abayim or one of the Bachram Shluchim in the Yeshiva, like the, the elder of Bachram, who, who, who just, you know, maybe I confided in him, I don't remember so many years ago, but I remember he said something that was different messaging than was otherwise being said, he said, the reason why the Altar writes so much about this Avera is because of how normal it is, how ubiquitous it is. It's everywhere. It's out there. Everyone's dealing with it. And I think, you know, we, we don't have to, we can normalize it without um, um, making it, uh, without making it permissible. We can say everyone is struggling with it. And this is, you know, it, it's, it's normal that you're having the struggle. Instead of trying to Fight the shame, distract yourself, go on to other things, and uh, the, you know that's. Check it out. The, the win the battle, you know, you know, win the war, not the battle. That, that meaning every single day in day out, there's going to be a struggle. The, the, you're going to struggle. You're going to fail, like you're doing everything. So we, we don't so worry about normalizing bittul tarlosh, right? You're going to have and. and we say Hashem wants tshuva. What do you mean? He wants failure. There's going to be things that are are, are are out of your hands or get too much or you're going to fail. That's fine. The different, we don't even have to normally, if we're framing it as your whole purpose is to battle, so we don't have to worry, I'm, I'm not it. No, you're on the battlefield. So of course, you're taking opposition fire. Kids today, they play video games. You know, they play basketball. Right? As you get better, what do you, you get weaker opponents or stronger opponents? You go from the minor leagues to the major leagues. You go up a level in a game. What happens? The, the bad guys get easier or harder? As you grow, you're going to be faced with bigger demons. Now, it might not be as explicit, but don't worry. You'll, you'll peel the onion of the self, of the Yetzirah, whatever you want to call it, of the Klepus, right? Again, you're going to encounter deeper and deeper layers. That's not a sign of a problem. That's a sign, wow. Okay, so you, you have tremendous opposition. Do you know what that means? That, wow, somebody, the Abishter and everybody else, we should really believe that you're worthy of this opponent. Now, but if you have a worthy opponent, that by definition means, you know, if you're going to have Bechira, that means you're at the 50-50 mark. That means you're going to get zets, but good. You're going to take beatings. You're going to fall down. So the goal is to, to energize and encourage and put in its right place what our job here is. And so then, this is again in the context of all of our Torah, all of Hasidus, and you could you could feel good about your struggle versus oh my gosh, I'm going to hide. And and understand Sheva will come that this is going to you're going to fall and pick up and you're going to fall and that this is actually the journey towards right towards righteousness. Hundred percent. But we're we're getting close on time. I want to throw a few more quick things at you, just kind of. Uh, mm. Uh, to, to steal from all these other things, a, a little bit of a, a lightning round. You know, I, I take a lot of heat from some friends, family, who, you know, who I've told that I've done this with my children. I told my children, I said, I will never lie to you. You know, you know, when I have these conversations, I said, I will, I said, you can come to me with any question and with the most explicit graphic. And I, I said, it will never lie to you. You know, it may make us both uncomfortable. And some have come back to me with really, really uncomfortable things. I'm like, wow, you're so young. How do you even know those words? But I, I, I hope that it has served, um, well, the, the journey is ongoing, but, but is that an, an acceptable and appropriate approach? I think absolutely. I, I think I, to me, it, it's one of my really things that is a pet peeve of mine because I'm constantly dealing with messes where adults lie to children. And then, oh, but then why don't they trust me? Because you're not trustworthy. 
Because one of the only ways that we actually have a Messiah is called A father does not give over as an inheritance lies to his child. The whole basis of one of the core foundations of how we have a link back to our Sinai is because we don't lie to our kids. And if we start to lose that, we're lost. So not lying to kids also doesn't mean that I give them every detail about everything. So I, from the youngest ages, we're talking to kids about this within a developmental context. So there's a difference between not lying and having to give an entire chasen shmuz about every prop. But how, how could we expect any trust, any commitment to Messiah and, and honesty if we lie to them? So, right, we have to do developmentally appropriate at what level they're hearing based on what they're exposed. And yes, some kids would be shocking for us when they come with but I'm no longer shy. My, my daughter is, a, you know, a base Yaakov girl, you know, so I, my son was like a year or two ago when it was like, you know, I guess in first grade, pre when I first grade at the time, she comes up to me, did you hear what he said? And of course, it was the, all the basic curse words. And I was like, I, I rolled my eyes because like, of course, of course, he's on yeshiva bus. I said, I sent him to yeshiva. Of course, that's what he's going to pick up on the bus. Like, uh, like, you know, she was horrified. And he came in like, oh, daddy, like he like he had the, you know, the goods. And I said to him, yes. Tell me what you heard. Here's what they actually mean. Here's why we don't use them. There was zero drama. He left. He came back a few minutes later. He said, oh, I heard one more, a really dirty one. And I calmly the same way. Then it was over. Why? Because the whole meat of it was, oh, it's taboo. It's nasty. If you speak very openly, and that's why we don't talk about them this way, because it's something impure. But I explained to him exactly what they mean. And yes, you know. And I know you know. Okay. This whole thing, when you get rid of the taboo, it makes you every conversation possible. Here, it, just interestingly, I, I, I've been doing this for many years, even before the book came out. So I knew that, you know, what, what happened was parents would always come back when they actually did the education, they'd come back and say, oh, wow, the conversation went, went better than I expected. The next level was they'd come back and say, you know what, the strangest thing happened. A week later, my kid told me he's getting bullied in school. A week later, my kid said, oh, somebody tried to do something inappropriate and they prevented it. And now they're looking at the channel of dialogue and now everything can come through. Once you showed up and you demonstrated that nothing's off limits, like you you imparted to your kids, I'm here, you're going to get truthful information and I can handle anything. It might be uncomfortable. And I'll own that it's uncomfortable and I'll say that, but we're going to be honest. Then they have a sense, wow, I could be open to you about everything. We think that we're hiding just uh, sexual information from them. The data shows us how much our kids don't tell us when they feel like, oh, they, they, oh yeah, yeah, I can talk to them about very firm. Wow, okay, she got it. I'll share my divrei tari at the Shabbos table. I can't talk to you about anything real. And when you can really be there for your kids, it revamps the relationship entirely. Right. A, a lot of people push back against that and they say, well, once once you make it all that you're going to love them, embrace them, accept them, and you're going to create that that whole channel of communication with them, you're also giving them you know, so to speak, a heter to 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 do other things, and because my tati is gonna always love me, is always. But uh, but, but I, I'm, wait, wait, I'm wait, wait, because I, I don't believe that. But I, but many people. Wait 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 wait, wait 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 Just one simple question: Do we believe that about Hashem? I love that. Do we do we believe that even what He tells us, and He warns us, and He warns us about the punishment and the severity? That ultimately he's going to say no, or does when Hashem telling us, I will always be here, I will always be I'm going to tell, I'll be truthful to you, and you always have a Pesach to me, and you can always come back. Why did that undermine the all of Tyre? Does anyone believe that about Hashem? Does anyone want that to be their Russian Yom Kippur experience? It is a bizarre twist that, again, I don't believe comes from Torah, I don't believe comes from health. 
I think it comes from psychological issues and misconstrual of hashkafa. Awesome. Okay, we're we're so we're we're basically out of time. I want to throw two quick questions at you. One is really worthy of its own conversation, but just any a, a quick short answer. Fact of the matter is, is technology is not helping the problem. Yeshivas are in this endless battle and struggle as relates to it. You know, the, they say you can you're only allowed to have a dumb phone in yeshiva, and then the kids have the kids know all the workarounds, filters. They know the workarounds and and all that stuff. Um, I get it, it's got to be a multi pronged approach. Do you have any wisdom that you'd like to impart on that? To me, it's the same exact thing we did. We, we stick our head in the sand and pretend. So we thought if we're going to do a, a filter-based approach, that's, that's all we have to do. Filters are very good for two things. Inadvertent exposure. So a kid who accidentally was clicked to two things or put in a question and boom, it popped up. Or somebody who's really trying to help themselves and it keeps some distance from it. Anybody who wants access to anything today is getting it. The internet is everywhere. A device costs 30 bucks at any local store. Wi-Fi hotspots are becoming mandatory. The whole thing is a joke in terms of that. It is very helpful. I have all my devices filtered and I'm on top of that. And if I get as a responsible parent, you cannot have unfiltered devices because you're giving them information that is absolutely dangerous. That being said, to use that as the only prong in your approach, that one trick pony does not fly for the vast majority of people. So what happens is we also have to educate. We also have to educate about how to use technology and how to use it safely. Nobody's not using technology today. Okay, it's dumb phone, it's not, it's email, it's it. Everybody and every device coming out is more and more connected, right? You can't escape this. So that doesn't mean you, you give can it to barely the buy a dumb phone anymore. Exactly. It's hard to but find them. Even if not, you, you, you cannot basically function in the world without it. And we're speaking out of two sides of our mouth. Because no technology, but email me the report or look it up, right? The whole thing doesn't. Or, 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 or take an Uber, but you don't have a device that can give right. you that. So, right. And, and, right. So somehow, and, and the Rabbeim are also getting Amazon packages, right? I don't think from a phone-based service, right? This, so so, so we, we, we have to be genuine. We have to be authentic. That doesn't, right? I, it's interesting. I, for my daughter, who's my oldest, I was the last one to get her a device. And I was shocked that some of the Rabbeim's kids in the class got devices in front of mine because I know the risks. So I'm not all like, oh, just give them devices early, unfettered. No, delay, educate, filter, but do all of this education and teach them how to use it appropriately and how to manage both the front end and when they're going to struggle and inevitably the filter is going to go down. They're going to see something. If they're not prepared, we are absolutely not doing our job. We're just closing our eyes to make ourselves comfortable. Oh, no, there's a health, a health, figure out how to have a healthy relationship rather than to, to deny it. 100%. And, and again, that healthy relationship might, for some people in certain communities, be a much greater delay and might be just there, there, I'm not speaking about what level of access and how much, but the idea that you're just going to be able to deal with this by saying, no, we have a, a no smartphone policy that is, you know this, how many people in your yeshiva come later and struggle, right? At least tell the Mashiach, right, that he's struggling, please. So it has to be a comprehensive approach. Okay, one last question. My wife likes to finish all of her podcasts with this question. Tell us something that you used, you know, given your your clinical experience and your your vast knowledge, and then of course putting out the book, something that you used to think was a fact, and after more research, you learned that you were wrong about that, and that came as a surprise to you. 
So I, I alluded to one thing with the shame. I used to just think that shame didn't, you know, really have its place. So that was a big change when I was able to see how healthy shame, you know, could be a, a very Torah-based concept. Um, there's another very interesting thing in the literature about, particularly about pornography and addiction. Um, religious beliefs are actually very healthy in terms of preventing. So we have, let's think about, it, we have much less uh, teen pregnancy, STDs, uh, things like that. But what's strange is there seems to be some indication that uh, very conservative or religious populations have higher pornography use. And I think it goes to this issue that when you people think that if I make it very bad or us or it's taboo, it'll prevent it. In certain areas, having a certain culture does that. But for this, especially because it's private and internal, like you talked about, it actually exacerbates the problem enormously. And so you have higher rates of porn in the Bible Belt and in other places. And we even have some data from within the firm world. And, and that's one big thing. The other big thing is there's a very confounding issue. Again, this is less of a confusion of mine, but it's a huge confusion in the field. There's almost nothing else where I get referrals all day because of Averis. Again, Lashnara, Bittatara, none of this. I can have a practice dedicated to just and what happened is we conflated what I have a whole a whole chapter called sinful versus sick, where because we have an iser of it, if somebody actually pursues pornography, looks at pornography, we view them, oh my gosh, you saw terrible things and we have to, and they have some weird idea that like Zimmerman or his colleagues could, you know, go in a vacuum cleaner and suck this out of you. The vast majority of people who both pursue pornography or look at pornography are purely developmentally healthy, normal people, right? I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's not us, sir. I'm not saying it doesn't have attended risks, but like everything else, right? When my kid spills, you know, a toddler spills orange juice on the floor, he's doing something that's developmentally normative. You tell him, you should stop that. But there is such conf confusion and uh, from mental health professionals in particular are much more apt to think of their uh, patients as addicts. The people themselves, one of the reasons that you become addicts is because you believe, oh my gosh, I, I masturbated once, I'm an addict. I, and if you look up criterion in the wrong way, hey, this is something that I do even though I want to stop. So first of all, I hate that criterion in general because I, I tell people all the time. So everybody I know is an addict. You ever, you ever went to a kiddish or a Shalom Zohar and ate just what you wanted to eat? So we're all food addicts, right? We all are addicts, right? And especially if you have an isser of something that's purely a drive and developmentally normal, but you don't want to do it because it's usser, you're going to naturally keep bumping into that. So there are, there is a place where this can become a full-blown addiction. There are real risks, but the fear-mongering and the intensity and the danger and the you know labeling around this is extraordinarily dangerous. Excellent. Um, in fact, Guard Your Eyes has... Um... A, a kind of like a test, you know, to, to, to check yourself where you're holding. I need therapy. I need 12 steps. I need, you know, so they actually help, help break it down. And anyway, okay, we went long and I apologize. And thank you for giving us all this time. Um, Dr. Zimmerman, um, if people want to reach out to you, is there a website? Is there, well, what's the best way for people to reach out? The, the best way is, do you even have time for people to reach out to you? Well, well I, I have a group practice. I have a, I have a team that works together with me. So we do, again, it, there will be some delay in me getting back to you, but I, I do try to be responsible and get back to people in some reasonable time. Um, the best is my, my office number is 718-338-4477. Again, 718-338-4477. You can reach out to me by email at stephen at zimmerman1.com. Stephen, 
at Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N-1-the-number-one.com. Uh, like you said, the, the, that information is in the back of the book as well. Uh, we'll give you both the information to purchase the book and for Moistus, for Abban and Mechanchim to get it uh, shipped to them for free as long as they request it via the links. And uh, yeah, we have a team and uh, you know, I'm happy to... I, I, I'm very invested in both training Rabbanim in communities and even additional supervisees under me to, to serve the broader Tzibor. So uh, 100%. Fantastic. Yes,